1 Thessalonians 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet of, the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, and therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. We urge you, brothers and sisters, to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You may have a seat. Once we're done here, I'm assuming that you all are probably going to go out and grab something to eat, have some lunch, and I'm assuming that at that table or wherever you're gathering, you'll probably have some good conversation. I wonder if at that table, in that conversation, somebody were to ask you, what are your top three hopes? We all come in here with hearts that are full of hopes, or we come in here that have hearts that are discouraged by dash hopes. But what we have in common amongst many things is that we have hopes. And if we were to talk about these hopes, we would would find out that some of us, all of us, have top hopes. Top three hopes, the question would be. What, What are the things that you are hoping for the most? Do you hope, for instance, that you, do you hope to finish your degree? Do you hope to have a relationship mended? Or do you hope to have a relationship started? Do you hope for healing? Do you hope for an advance in your career? What are you hoping for, brothers and sisters? And how would you put it in some sort of order? What is your top hope? What is the second hope? What would be your third hope? 
ask that question because uh, a, a book that we have, a children's book that we have at our house asked a similar question. I thought it was, it was interesting. The question in the book asked, what is the hope of the church? It's a great question. What is the hope of the church? We know that the church is not a brick-and-mortar building. When we're talking about the church, we're talking about the people of Christ, the people that comprise and make up the church. So in asking the question, what is the hope of the church, we're asking the question, what is the hope, the hope of Christians? Notice it's not asking what is a hope of the church. It's asking what is the hope of the church. Definitive article, as in the major hope the one thing that the church holds true. How would you answer that? How would you answer that? What is the hope of the church? Well, this children's book does a great job in answering it. This, the children's book says this, that the hope of the church is the return of Jesus when he will make all things new. Is that a good hope for the church? That is the hope of the church, the return of Jesus, him coming back where he will make all things new. Make all things new. And the question that comes to my mind, the question that I asked you when I saw that question is, if that's the hope of the church, how does that hope as believers in here, Christians in here, how does that hope line up with your hopes? In other words, where does it find itself in your list of hopes? And thinking of your top three hopes, does it make the top three? Is it up there at the at, at, at the beginning. Last week we mentioned from Pastor Tope's message a couple of weeks ago that 318 times the return of the Lord is mentioned in the New Testament. It seems to be a big deal because it is the most talked about doctrine in the New Testament. And I have to be, once again, honest with myself, even though it's stated that often, 318 times, could it be and if I'm not careful, it ends up being 318th on my list of hopes. Right. Top hopes, top three hopes. Now, we live in a day and age where it's very uh, easy for it not to be the top hope or the top three hopes or somewhere up there on your list. There's three reasons that come to mind that challenges this, 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 uh, this perspective, this hope of the return of Jesus Christ to rise up on, on, my, on my board, as it were. One of them is that we swim in a culture where the... the Underneath the, all of the doings and all of the happenings is this whisper that says, and is represented in the book of, book of Peter, where is the promise of his coming? Well, we live in a world where the world is like, hey, things have been going on since the beginning of creation. Y'all been talking about Jesus coming back for a long time. Where is he? It's difficult to live in a world where that is spoken either out loud or that's just the air that we breathe. We, we live in a culture where there's just a gross indifference to the things of God and a gross indifference to this return of Christ. In fact, in our culture today, we live in a world where it's quite common to think that we can go about the business of fixing what's broken in this world. Why do we need to have the return of Jesus to come back to make all things new? We can do this thing on our own. But I wonder for believers... What if there's one specific thing that causes this, this, this return of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the hope of the church, I wonder if, if this particular thing causes it to kind of decrease on our ladder of importance. Jesus spoke about it, and he called it the cares of this world. Anybody walk in here this morning with some care on your shoulders? Did you walk in this morning with a little burden on your back? 
the cares of this world, Jesus told us, we have to be careful for because he says that the worries of this life, the worries that keep you up at night, the worries that occupy your soul when you have a moment of quietness, those worries can cause this hope that of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to be silenced in your life. He said, be careful and watch out for the cares of this world because it will cause you to be asleep and to keep your eyes off of the return of the Lord. The cares of this world are things that we need to be much concerned with. It, it, it takes our eyes off of this hope, this hope that Paul turned to, turns to now in chapter 5. He, he's talked about this hope already in chapter 1 in 1 Thessalonians, right? In chapter 1 in 1 Thessalonians, remember he commended, he, he actually gave thanks to God because of the work that he's done in the Thessalonians' life. He says, I give thanks to God for your work of faith and for your labor of love. And then he turned around and says, I give thanks to God for your endurance, the endurance of your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, in chapter 5 here, Paul turns again, and he wants to unpack further this hope. He wants to fuel the Thessalonians' endurance in this hope by urging his brothers and sisters. Did you get a sense of that as we were reading the text? Urging his brothers and sisters to be alert and to be self-controlled in the expected day of the Lord. It's a day that he says it's coming, and in light of that, be awake, be alert. Be sober, be self-controlled. The Thessalonians have moved off of the stage, as it were, right? We're not sitting in, the, in Thessalonia, Thessalonia at this particular moment. We are in Minneapolis. Thessalonians are gone, as it were. They're no longer among us. They have taken their place amongst the dead in Christ, and we who are now alive in Christ, we are ones who are now left and waiting until the coming of the Lord. So this, this, this urging that Paul gave to his Thessalonian brothers and sisters are still our urging, are still the thing that calls us because we are now still waiting. We are still waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the timeless truth that we find in our text is that as those who are waiting, we are to be ready. We are to stay ready for the expected day of the Lord. We're to stay ready for it. So, what do we learn about the expected day of the Lord here in our text? I think Paul gives us four lessons to consider from chapter 5 here. Lesson 1, that expected day, when I say the coming of the Lord, the second coming of the Lord, another way of saying that is that day, on that day, that expected day will arrive unexpectedly. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, that expected day will surprise some, but not all. Lesson number three, that expected day influences this day. So my title from last Sunday's service was this day and that day. And my title for this ser sermon today is this day and that day part two, right? Or continued or revived, whatever, right? Lesson number four, that expected day shapes relationships. So let's briefly go over these four lessons. Let's start with the first one. That expected day will arrive unexpectedly. Look at verses number 1 and 2, chapter uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 and 2. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Remember where we were in chapter 4 last week? 
Paul helped the Thessalonians to understand how they are to deal with those who have died in Christ, how they were not supposed to grieve as those who have no hope, but because of the day of the Lord, because that day is coming, in, in the day of their grief, they were to, to, to yes, grieve, be as ones who are grieving with hope. He talked about how to deal with death. And then he said to him, hey, brothers and sisters, you don't have to worry about it. When Jesus comes back, those who have died in Christ and you who are alive in Christ, y'all are going to meet Christ in the air together and you will forever and always be with the Lord. Well, then what's probably the next, next, the next natural question after that? Oh, this is going to happen. We're going to meet the Lord in the air together. What's, what's probably the next natural question after that? When? When? When is this going to happen? When is it going to happen when the believers, both dead and alive, will meet Christ in the air and be with him together? When will that happen? It's interesting that Paul here in this verse, he doesn't even address the question of when as it were. He says, we've already talked to you about the when at this stage. Now concerning the times and concerning the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need for anything to be written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It seems like, even though we've had plenty of scriptures that tell us that it's none of our business when the Lord is coming back, we still try to figure that out. We still try to figure it out. Everywhere, everywhere from the book of Acts in chapter 1 where, where upon the resurrection of the Lord, his, his disciples are saying, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom? And he says, hey, 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 hey. That's not for you to know. That's wrapped up in my father's hands and in my father's authority. I got something else for you to do. From that day all the way up into this day, what is September 6, 1994, and May 21st, 2011, and October 21st, 2011, and June 9, 2019, what do they all have in common? Anybody recognize those dates? All of those dates come from the mouth of somebody who predicted that was the day when Jesus was coming back. Those are real dates that came out of the mouth of real people that said, hey, on this day, the Lord has come back. 1994, 2011, 2019. What year are we in? Amen. There's a current story in our culture now. That part of that story is wrapped up in the fact that one of the persons in that story believes that Jesus is coming back in 2020. And because of this, it has dictated some of the actions that this person has done. We live in a day and age where it's just easy and it's, 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 we itch to try to figure out when this day will happen. It's not for us to know the times and the seasons that the fathers have fixed by his own authority. What we are to know, though, what this text does tell us is that the day of the Lord will come. It will come. And when we think about the day of the Lord, we're thinking about it from two different perspectives, right? Paul says, I don't have to have, I don't have any reason to talk to you about this day of the Lord because apparently I've talked to you about it already. But consider once again what the day of the Lord represents. It's as a coin that has two sides to it. On one side, the day of the Lord is a day of universal judgment. When the day of the Lord hits, this is God now intervening into human history shutting all things down, and on one end, he's handing out universal judgment. This judgment is so 
difficult to get our mind wrapped around that all of the scriptures bend over backwards to try to give us some imagery of how difficult that day is going to be, how horrific that day is going to be, how troubling that day will be. Consider this passage from Zephaniah chapter 3 about the day of the Lord on the judgment side. Zephaniah 3, I'm sorry, Zephaniah chapter 1, I'm going to go to 3 in a second. Zephaniah chapter 1 says, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. The day of wrath is that day, a day of darkness and anguish and a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the lofty battlements. This is the Lord speaking here when he says, I, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. This coming day of the Lord will be a day like no other day. And these words, as difficult as they are, as vivid of a picture that they paint, is still not even telling half of it. Still not even telling half of it. If one side of the coin is judgment, when it comes down to the day of the Lord, the other side of the coin is that the day of the Lord is going to be a day of hope. It's going to be a day of hope. I thought I was going to get a good amen on that one right there. It is going to be a day of hope. Listen now to Zephaniah 3 that speaks about this day. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you, and he has cleared all of your enemies away. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you will never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in the midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. Get this picture in your mind, brothers and sisters. He will exult over you with loud singing. Is there something, is there a category in your mind of the triune God singing over you? <laughs> that, that is going to be a day of hope like you have never experienced before. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Says, Behold, at that time, I, this is the Lord talking, will deal with with your oppressors. You don't got to deal with your oppressors because somebody else will. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will change their shame into praise and a renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. Is anybody hoping, hoping for this day of the Lord on this side where it's a day of hope. A day of hope. Paul is telling his people, listen, don't be concerned with the wind. Be concerned with the certainty. The day of the Lord will come. Will come. And it will be a day like no other. 
He goes on further to say, listen, let me help you understand what this day is going to be like. This day is going to be like a thief that comes in the night. This is not an imagery that Paul made up by himself. This is, he's listening to, he's hearing straight from the mouth of Jesus who described his return as a thief. We, uh, Eric read it for us, I believe, earlier in Mark. I believe that was the case there. A thief, a thief in the night, a thief, right? He says, hey, this is another version. If the, I'll say it again. If the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready. It says, in light of that, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. I know this, this parable well, this thief coming unexpectedly. I know it well, and you would probably ask about something if you were to come to my house in New Jersey where I grew up. As you walk to the front door, if you were paying attention, you'd see a rusted, a rusted metal box the top left-hand corner. You might ask, what is that rusted metal box? And I'd say, let me tell you about the time when we had to install an alarm system in our house. We had to install an alarm system because a couple of weeks prior to, we walked into our house and our house had been robbed. Furniture was broken in pieces and thrown all over the place. Possessions were stolen and taken. Things were flipped over. I can't, I can't even express to you the feeling of walking into a place where I lived and somebody else broke into that house and robbed us. Now, how many of y'all know? If we'd have known that he, well, she, I don't know who it was, that thief was going to come at 2 o'clock that afternoon, how many of y'all know we'd have been there waiting for him? In Jesus, we'd have been there waiting for him in Jesus. But we'd have been there waiting for him. We would have been ready. Jesus says, this is, my, this is how, what my return is going to be like. I'm coming like a thief in the night, so be ready. What do we, what do we consider and what do we do from this, these first two verses? One, I'd say, in my own soul, I know I need to close the gap. And what I mean by closing the gap is that What's theoretical in my mind? I think everybody in here who's been in Christ for a little bit can say, yes, the Lord is coming back. What's theoretical in my mind? That gap needs to close into it being more functional in my life. In other words, that hope has got to rise up the ladder of importance. And oh, would God make us into a people that have a felt hope. We, we remember on a regular basis that the Lord is coming back. Lesson number two, the expected day will catch some by surprise and not others. Look at verses three through five. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. We are not of the night or of darkness. He continues to go on and speak about why this day will be a surprising day for others. We see some major metaphors that are happening here. Metaphors like day and night. Metaphors like light and darkness. Metaphors like awake and sleep. Metaphors like sober and like uh, drunk here at this point. Why will this day be a day of surprise? 
for some. It'll be a day of surprise for some because word on the street is everything is all good. Everything is all good. That's what that verse here means. It says peace and security, right? There is peace and security. Everything is going well. Everything is going okay. Everything is fine. This wording is taken from the Old Testament where false prophets were telling God's people everything is all good while judgment was inching closer and closer and closer and closer to them. There will, this surprise will come upon those who have no awareness whatsoever that judgment is even a, a possibility, let alone that it is, is near. Peace and security, then, sudden destruction will come upon them. This sudden destruction that comes upon them, he likens it to the birth pains that a woman has uh, when she's about to give birth to a child. I'm in no position to talk about that whatsoever, right? I remember there was, a, uh, there was a, a video that came out of two, two guys who thought that uh, giving birth to a child was, you know, nothing at all. And they stimulated in the video what it might feel like for them to start to have labor pains. And those brothers didn't last more than three or four minutes. Ladies, you know who've given birth. You, you know when that pain hits. You understand how sudden it comes. You understand how it shuts your whole world down. And now everything is focused on you not giving birth to this child. This day that's coming, for those who will be surprised by it, will be sudden, like birth pains that come in. But in this scenario where women gave birth in this day, it could also be destructive. It could be something that takes away their life. And notice that the suddenness of the day, the surprise of this day, is not going to be a suddenness and a surprise that they like. It's going to be a suddenness and a surprise that's classified as destruction. And notice, no one that's surprised by this day will escape from it at all. It tells us here at the bottom of verse number three that none will escape. But then he says, hey, but guess what, brothers and sisters? You, verse number four, you are not in the darkness Darkness as a, a metaphor meaning you are not without God in this world. If you think of Colossians, Colossians 1, where Paul says when he's giving thanks to God and he's expressly giving thanks because he's transferred believers out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. If you are in Christ in here this morning, you have been moved out of the darkness. You've been moved out of the place where you did not know God or had no relationship with him or have no understanding with him. You, brothers and sisters, are not of the darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. Does that mean that we're going to know, right? If that day doesn't surprise us like a thief, does that mean we're not, we're going to have an exact understanding of when it's coming down? No, Christ has already told us that, but we still, we still are expected. We still wait. We still wait as those who are no longer children of darkness. That day won't come upon us as a surprise. In 2018, 1,200 people lost their lives in Indonesia because of a combination of a 7.5 earthquake that coupled with a tsunami that wiped them out. You would have thought that in 2018 they might have had some sort of alarm system, which they did. They had an alarm system set up with buoys that were supposed to measure what was going on and send alerts back to the mainland so that they can have warning. On this occasion, none of the buoys worked. None of them. All of them were broken due to negligence. All of them. On this particular beach where this tsunami hit, there was an event going on, a party that was about to happen, and little did they know that coming their way was a wave that was higher than electricity poles. 
combination of the earthquake and the tsunami wiped out 1,200 people. They were caught by surprise. They were caught by surprise. Those, if, if I have any friends in here that are not in Christ, let me warn you that a wave is coming. A wave is coming like you have never seen. It's a wave that is coming against the righteous wrath of God against our sin. And the only way to remove yourself from the path of that wave is to become a child of the day, a child of the light as we see, which is the trust in Jesus Christ. So friend, if you are in here and you don't know Jesus, I'm so glad to tell you that today we want you to be introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ. Talk to the person that brought you or come see one of us at the end so we can talk to you more about the Lord. And for my brothers and sisters in here who are believers, you are the children of light, saved from the wave, as it were, right? Thankfulness abounds as a result as it is. This day doesn't catch us by surprise because we're not in darkness. We are ones who understand what is coming. Lesson number three, the expected day influences this day. The expected day influences this day. Influence, as we know, comes, from, comes in many shapes and comes in many sizes. It's been interesting to watch over the last couple, of, uh, last couple of months with the complicated character of Kobe Bryant and what his death has brought to the forefront in terms of how influential he has been, he had been. Anywhere from the mama mentality or from his, insist- or from his category of being a girl's, di- a girl's dad, we, we, Kobe has shown himself to be influential at a high level. But influence doesn't just come from people. Consider how influential the future is. Whether you know it or not, you are influenced by the future all the time. In other words, the future is always pressing into today. You're always influenced by it, right? Right. Tomorrow you're going to go to work, and presumably you're probably not going to get paid tomorrow. You're going to get paid in the future. But because you're getting paid in the future, guess what you're going to do tomorrow? You're going to go to work. You're going to get up. You're going after a degree that's coming in the future. That future, that day is coming. That day is, is impacting on this day. So it gets you into those books when you don't feel like getting into the books. The future speaks to us all the time. And in this text, in this part of the verse, is helping us see that that day ought to speak into this day. Look at verse number six. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to that day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Let us do that. Because that has happened, because we are ones who are of the day, children of the ones who are waiting, let that day influence this day and do it by putting on the breastplate of faith and the breastplate of love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. Does that mean we get strapped up in some sort of armor? Supposed to get up and get in some armor tomorrow? No. It's saying how we are ones who are influenced by that day. How, do we, how does that speak into this day? We work. We, have, we, we, we walk in faith. We labor in love. And we go about the business of staying hopeful as a result of our Lord coming to us. How do we, how do we stay alert? How do we stay awake? How do we do so? Walk by faith. Do acts of love. Stay hopeful, hopeful in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's impactful here in this text is notice what the ground of our working is. We do that. We, we, we find ourselves ones who are awake, ones who are alert, 
ones who are self-controlled. That's what the metaphor of sober, sober means. We find ourselves as ones who are awake and alert and self-controlled because of something that God has done already for us. Right? God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus who died for us. Who died for us. Because God has done that, we now do the work of staying alert and staying awake. That's how it always is. It's always because of what God has done for us, we in turn do what we are called to do. So whether we're awake, those of us who are alive, or whether we are asleep, those of us who've passed on in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will always be with the one who, who loves us. Let me move on to the, to the, to the next lesson. Once again, I, I brought too much stuff into the pulpit. <laughs> Lesson number four. Lesson four. The expected day shapes relationships. The rest of chapter five is Paul saying, okay, if you're to be alert and you're to be awake, if you're to be self-controlled, if you're to live as those who are waiting for the day, live as children of the day, if you're to do that, let me give you some pointers into how you should do it. And notice it's in the context of relationships. It's in relationships that we wait together. It's in relationships that we are alert together. It's in relationships that we find ourselves in, in self-control together. And he then unpacks here for this verse anything from having to what your relationship is like with those who are over you in the body of Christ, your pastors and elders. In verse 12, he says, hey, I want you to respect those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. And to esteem their work, esteem them very highly in love because of their work, right? It kind of seems a little self-serving to say, this is how you should be treating the pastor. But what I would say to you is that please be praying to this end. Would the Lord supply his church with pastors who work, with pastors who admonish, with pastors who labor, with pastors who are over you as under-shepherds of the Lord Jesus Christ, shepherding the flock that was purchased by the blood of Christ? You know, the greatest thing you can do for us pastors is to pray that the Lord would cause us to be worthy, worthy pastors of his flock. The next couple of verses here speak about how we should be treating one another. Is there anybody that's idle among you? Admonish them. If there's anybody that's faint-hearted, encourage them. If there's anybody weak, help them. If there's anybody, patient, uh, if there's anybody that, that, that needs to be patient, guess what? Everybody needs to be patient. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil. See that you always seek to do the good of others. Rejoice always. Pray without season. All of these different ways for us to turn around and say, okay, if we're going to be the ones who are waiting, we're not going to be waiting as those who are looking up in the sky waiting for the Lord to return. We're waiting as those who are doing work among us. And these are ways that we can do work among us. What would it be like to encourage one another to rejoice always? What would it be like to pray without ceasing? What would it be like to encourage one another to give thanks in all circumstances? This is what it means to wait. This is what it means to be alert. This is what it means to, to, to be steadfast, to be self-controlled. And we do it with one another. So if you see me slipping, if you catch me as one who's not thankful in all circumstances, Paul is saying, encourage me to do so. Build me up to do so. And this is how we all wait together and things of that nature. This is how we wait together. Paul ends his, his, his letter here to 1 Thessalonians giving us good news. If you're sitting here thinking like, man, this is a lot of work to do. When am I going to find the strength and the grace to endure and keep to the end? 
how am I going to be as one that's alert and awake all the way to the end? He gives a, a good word to our soul, which I'll end with in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep you to the end. Here's the call. He who calls you is faithful, brothers and sisters. He will surely do it. This letter ends by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's our only hope. How we will endure and make it all the way to the end will be because we are a people who are supplied by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. To know that the one who is, who is, who is faithful to do what he's going to do will continue to do it in our lives. So remember, that day pours itself into this day. And as believers, we are called to be those who are ready for the expected return of the Lord by staying alert, by being self-controlled, by remaining steadfast, and encouraging one another to do so. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I pray that through the weakness of the words coming out of my mouth, Father, through the the weakness of this sermon, Father, you would show yourself to be powerful. Paul said that he boasts in his weakness. And I pray, Father, that your word would powerfully magnify itself in our hearts as those who are children of the day and those who are waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would we be an expectant people And on the top of our list, what our number one hope be, the expected return of the Lord. Now, as we turn to go, Father, I pray that you would grant us much grace, much grace in living as those who are hopeful and living as those who are waiting for the return of your son. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.